welcome to From the Newsroom. This is our moderately weekly slash when we get around to it podcast coming from the Holland Sentinel news staff. I am Audra Gamble, the managing editor over at the Sentinel, and today I'm joined by one of our reporters, Carolyn Myskins. Hello. How's it going, Carolyn? It's good. I'm coming to you from my couch. From your couch. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm joined electronically, not not in real life. Only, only time will tell how long until we can be in the same room. <laughs> okay, so Carolyn, I, I wanted to chat with you today. Um, we've kind of been doing a little series of highlights slash very memorable moments of our journalistic careers in the newsroom. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to them, um, our sports team did a podcast about um, kind of of, you know, significant sports moments in, in either their reporting lives or just as sports fans. And then our editor-in-chief, Sarah Leach, and our digital editor, Brian Vernellis, talked a little bit about kind of having a, a little bit of a longer look in the journalism field. And they talked about, you know, what it was like to be reporters during 9-11 and that sort of thing. But you and I have a little bit of a different perspective because you and I were both in elementary school when 9-11 happened. <laughs> so we have been in journalism, is it less than less than five years professionally for both of us. Is that accurate? Yes, I've been in journalism for two years professionally. Okay. And we, I mean, we were both reporters in college and, and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but we thought it would be kind of interesting to take a little bit of a look back at, well, we may not necessarily have stories with a lot of longevity. I think we still have seen quite a bit of lasting impression stories on both of our ends. I think particularly because you and I both cover court cases and sometimes those can be, you know, kind of gory or like very high impact in terms of like emotion and and impact on the community if you're talking about, you know, a murder case or something like that. So um, we kind of wanted to take a little bit of a look back at the things we did not know we were signing up for (laughs) when we became journalists. Yes, I think it's amazing to when you're a daily reporter at a newspaper the sheer volume of things that you cover. And then when you add it into that, the fact that you are either the the crime, the cops beat reporter or the courts reporter. In my case, I was both at the first place that I worked. You just, you encounter a lot in a very short amount of time and a lot of stuff that is really memorable, really, really wild and really emotionally impactful. I mean, that's impactful in a great way and sometimes it's impactful in a what is happening right now kind of yes Um, so I feel like you know sometimes you're you're in these situations where especially when you're talking about you know being a reporter in court and court cases those are sometimes some of the most you know emotionally charged rooms you're ever in (laughs) in terms of you know like when a, a verdict is read out from a jury trial or something like that and you're kind of just there you know absorbing and observing as this third party entity that's not really you know a part of one of the sets of families or anything like that and most people are you know out about and living their lives and and at their jobs so they don't really necessarily know what that dynamic can be in a courtroom and you and I have the opportunity to do that for our day jobs so yeah I would say gosh I'm trying to think so I've been at the Sentinel for three years and I I want to say that I've covered at least 
five murder-related trials. I would say that's a fair bet. And actually, just in the last year, you know, with you being here, we've had some really high-profile ones. So it's it's always a fascinating time. And you, I, I always think that, like, just the court process is really interesting in terms of, you know, when the state police people start talking about the forensic testing they do. And I always learn a lot in that process. But it is sometimes a little gorier than I think people realize, especially when you start talking about, you know, the medical examiner talking about autopsies and and depending on what the scene looked like. When you got into journalism, was that something that you, you know, knew you were going to be kind of happening upon in, in your career on a regular basis? Absolutely not. No, I, 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 I never intended to be a cops reporter or a courts reporter. It was just what I was assigned to when I started my first full-time journalism job and it wasn't something that I I'm not one of those people who like follows well before I became a journalist I wasn't one of those people (laughs) who follows true crime and was really into that to begin with but I found myself absolutely fascinated by it and particularly the courts side of things as well I think Audrey, you and I are probably pretty similar in that we both love to learn. And oh, so, sure, yeah. Like when we get to tackle a topic that we just get to absorb a lot of new information about and learn a lot about something very specific. Um, and sometimes that's something really technical in the courts. Like that's that's really interesting to both of us and being able to absorb all that and then translate it to an audience in a way that they can understand. Like that's one of the things that I really enjoy doing. I don't know. Yeah, about you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it is kind of a like not every reporter can can do that. Can I mean, like, man, court is hard sometimes, like especially I mean, I, I'll sit there and I'll watch a jury and we're going on our, you know, six of very technical <laughs> testimony for the day. And I see them kind of like, oh, gosh, they're slowing down, writing their notes. And I'm like, I feel that. I mean, I'm, I'm right there with them. But it's, you know, not every reporter can take, you know, say a, a hundred page complaint filed in federal court and, you know, find a way to get to the nitty gritty of what's really going on. But sometimes like those details are so crazy. And it's always, you know, uh, fascinating to me. Like, I definitely am not an attorney. I definitely did not go to law school. Like that's, I mean, I have a journalism degree. So it's always really interesting to me to kind of take a little peek into that other world and learn some of the jargon and, you know, kind of peel back the curtain a little bit of like how the the judicial system works. I don't necessarily know that most people think about like what happens kind of behind the partition in the courtroom of like where the defendant and the plaintiff are sitting and where things are happening. And then what happens in the gallery where like the normal people are sitting? Because that's, you know, everybody has seen like an episode of Law and Order or wherever where that sort of stuff plays out. But I think what is is some of the most surprising moments that I have had is when you're in in those situations where, you know, a trial is wrapping up or they're in really particularly emotional testimony, maybe of like an eyewitness or something like that. It's rough. I mean, like people are crying and they're, you know, talking about somebody's loved one and somebody else that, you know, whoever the, the defendant is, they're also talking about generally a very large amount of time, you know, behind bars. And there are some times where 
there have been some outbursts from families or you end up kind of being caught in the middle of families that are want nothing to do with each other. Like all of those normal family dynamics kind of get heightened when you're in a courtroom and you're talking about, you know, such grave consequences of, you know, say a murder trial or a sexual assault case or, or something that has a lot of, you know, potential prison time behind it. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things about being in court is that weird tension between how boring court can be and, and how are and how emotional it is. Right. Because yeah. yeah, I so I'm always trying to remind myself how high the stakes are because otherwise, like you can be bored by how technical it is and how long it takes, but you're like you're in a situation where on the one side some there's this family who's life has been changed forever in a very negative way, whether they've lost someone or someone's been seriously hurt. And then on the other side, someone facing their freedom being taken away. And I, I was kind of curious when you were talking about family dynamics, if you if you have any examples that stand out in your mind from cases that you've covered, any stories you want to tell about things that have that have happened. That have sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think one of the more, you know, recent examples that I think some of our our listeners would be more familiar with is um, there was a a shooting at a hotel 2019 and a a 14-year-old boy was killed, TJ Wells, and he was shot by a pretty high-powered rifle and an 18-year-old was convicted of it. That was the the Hampton Inn shooting and there were, you know, some some claims that, you know, it was like a a gang dispute and there was, you know, gang-related charges and, you know, it was both, like you were talking about, incredibly quick and and incredibly slow. I mean, when you get around to, you know, all of the the motions and the preliminary exams and, you know, attorney hearings and all of these things, like by the time you finally get to a trial, it feels like it's been eons. And yet for the families that are involved, you know, the, the loss of their 14 year old son is incredibly fresh and, and the, you know, impact on their families in, in lots of different ways of, you know, having the, on the other side, their 18-year-old son locked up and, you know, all of these things that have happened. That case was really tough, especially because the the both sets of families were very involved in attending the trial, which is not always the case. And it's kind of like when you walk into a wedding and like the bride's family is on one side and the groom's family is on the other side, it's kind of the same dynamic in a courtroom where, you know, the defendant's family is on the side kind of behind their table. And then the victim's family is on the side opposite. And very rarely is there interaction between those two sides, because frankly, at that point, most of the time, they really don't want anything to do with each other because there's been so much pain on, on both sides of those aisles. In that particular case, when the verdict was read, so the, the jury found the 18-year-old Juan Cabrera guilty of killing the 14-year-old. And the Juan Cabrera's family firmly believes that he is wrongfully convicted, that he is innocent. And so when the when the verdict was read, you're, you're, you see, you know, the victim's family, they're crying. And it's kind of this mix of tears of relief, but also sadness. And also this incredibly long process is over. And, you know, it's this like huge release of emotions. And in that particular trial, the Cabrera family, someone said out loud, kind of loudly in the courtroom, you know, that, that, the jury had gotten it wrong and that, you know, they were going to appeal and all of this was, you know, kind of a sham and and that, you know, that Juan Cabrera hadn't gotten, you know, justice that he deserved. And when, you know, those kinds of words are said in the courtroom, 
the, the tension goes from like kind of a simmering four all the way up to a 10 out of 10 in like a heartbeat. And it's always very uncomfortable because you have these two groups of people and, you know, it's so emotional for everyone. And they just sat together for, you know, a week, maybe two weeks. But you're also in a county building and there are armed deputies and you're just kind of standing there like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? So those moments can sometimes be a little scary. I I haven't personally been in a courtroom where like actual physical altercations have happened, but I have been in a few where there have been some heated words exchanged for sure. And I have been in trials where certain individuals from families or um, like people that have not been able to really behave themselves at prior court court dates for a a certain case have not been allowed to attend the trial, that sort of thing. But I I haven't seen like, you know, a sort of fistfight in the middle of the courtroom or anything like that. It's mostly been very uncomfortable moments of like tense verbal exchanges. Have you ever been in a (laughs) very dramatic, um, you know, it it doesn't even have to be, you know, like when a verdict is read, like, have you had those really moments in a courtroom before? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to talk a little bit about a case that involves a child being molested. And it's pretty, I mean, I, I, I hate to compare like the awfulness of crimes, but I, I was the one who sat in trial for the Jared Chance right. trial. Which um, was a decapitation murder. If anyone this, was the, this was the dismemberment murder that I'm sure our listeners heard a lot about over the last year. The Holland native who was living in Grand Rapids at the time. And actually, I, I also have a moment from, I have some moments from Jared Chance as well. But <laughs> I have to say, them away in the back of your head and then you remember yeah. them on, on quiet yeah. moments. <laughs> I've got to say, this trial that I'm going to talk about was a lot harder to sit through than the Jared Chance trial. And I think it just has to do with something psychologically about the fact that you know, the victim in this case was this very young child. And she, I mean, obviously she has her whole life ahead of her where she's going to have to live with the trauma of what happened. So she was, she was 10 years old when she was repeatedly raped by her mother's boyfriend, a man named Nicholas Thrash. And she was discovered to be five months pregnant There were a lot of details in this trial that are definitely going to stick with me for my entire life, I think. The way she was found that she was pregnant was she was getting ready for her eighth grade school dance, and she was... She was trying to put on her dress that she had bought a couple months ago, and she couldn't get it on. And um, that's how her mother found out that she... That's how they discovered that she was pregnant. Yeah, it's it's just... It's a really, really awful story. She ended up giving birth to the child, and she was obviously... A child herself. Yeah, she was 11 when she gave birth. But she was able to give birth safely, amazingly. And she and the baby were both fine. But the... So the boyfriend was charged... And the mother was also charged with aiding a child molester. And the prosecutor, who had been a career prosecutor, he was 
the prosecutor for, you know, 30, 40 years, he said it was the first time he had ever charged someone with aiding a child molester because there's such a high bar you have to prove. It was beyond neglect of the child. It was actually aiding. Yeah, like active assistance. Active assistance. Wow. And he said he's never seen anything so egregious to, to warrant aiding a child molester. But regardless of, of the details of that case, while in court... The the defendant, Nicholas Thrash, he actually had to be removed from court twice. The first time was during jury selection. He he was holding up signs, things that he had written on a piece of paper to the jury, disparaging the victim and calling her a liar and other calling her other things that I won't repeat. Um holding up signs to the jury pool. So he was removed from the courtroom. And then during the actual trial, he also had to be removed because he started yelling things at the courtroom about the victim. Wow. Trying to disparage her. Um, yeah, so that was just like a very heavy trial. There were a lot of details that stick with me. The fact that the victim brought a teddy bear with her up on the stand when she was testifying and just that detail kind of just underscored just how young she is to be going through this. Yeah, there, there are a lot of things that will stick with me about that trial. I think sometimes, you know, there's a really big difference between what you see as our final articles for the day. I mean, like you sit in court for eight hours and then you have to figure out a way to put that into 500 words to let readers know, you know, summarize eight hours of work and, you know, like 15 inches of, of column space. And then there's a really big difference between like what that final result is and then kind of the emotional impact of on just, I mean, any person, but, you know, when we're there, particularly, we have to be there really focused on the details, right? Because that's what we're there for. I mean, we're there to look for, you know, those, those key things and things that may be swaying a jury one way or another, and, you know, kind of have a sharp eye out for that sort of stuff. And it's, there are, I, I don't know if this is true for you, Carolyn, but I have found there are some cases that just hit you so hard and it's so hard to like just sit there and kind of keep like your poker face on in the courtroom and be that you know third party objective observer because it's it's as a journalist it's kind of easy for for me to at the end of of the day in court say okay well here's what happened I'm going to do kind of a summary of the testimony of the day and be very kind of matter of fact in your your final article of the day but when you are sitting there and and you're listening to you know someone testifying that's they're crying or like man it sucks when there's kids on the stand like it just sucks and it's you know it's it's so hard to not just like kind of have a human minute and just you know you you kind of have to allow yourself to just like feel what you're feeling and you know allow the case to impact you and in the way that it is and um you kind of find ways to deal with that as a reporter especially because you're trying to you know let people know what the what the impact of this case is on the community. So say it's a murder case, I try really hard to get in touch with the family of the victim and say, you know, we're going to be there for the trial. We're going to, you know, cover all of the procedural steps and, you know, all of that. But we also want to know from you, who was this person that the community lost? Tell us about your loved one, share pictures with us, you know, let people know 
what impact this has had on your family and, and the community. And I think that's a really important thing to do. And we're also very blessed to live in a community where murders and violent crime are rare enough that we have the opportunity to do that. We're not living in a city with, you know, 300 murders a year where that wouldn't be feasible. But it also is tough because then when you're sitting in the trial, you know these details about this person's life. You know, you know what their hobbies were, if they have children. You know, there, there are all of these things that I think sometimes are really tough emotionally. And there are some cases where I am totally fine and can be very matter of fact. And, you know, here's, you know, the manner of death and here's the autopsy and okay, fine. And then there are other times where, you know, not just as a reporter, but you can see it's really bothering, you know, the jury or, or the prosecutor or, you know, whatever. Like sometimes cases are just rough and there's not always a super easy, like, this case I'm going to be fine and in this case it's going to be really emotional like sometimes there will just be small details that kind of jam themselves in your brain and you can't really shake loose so sometimes that that's a, a challenge that I don't really think most people think about when they see that you know final article of, you know, so-and-so is guilty or so-and-so is not guilty, the, the actual process of, of getting to that end result can can be really emotionally draining for everyone in the courtroom, whether you're a prosecutor or a journalist or, or a member of the gallery or, or a judge. Like, that stuff can weigh really heavily sometimes, depending on the details of the case, especially when there are children involved. Yeah, I, I'm glad that you brought up, like, trying to translate what you experience in the courtroom into your, you know, 300 word, 500 word article that you write about the day. Because especially when I covered this, you know, this rape trial in, this was in Marion, I forgot to specify, this was in Marion, Indiana, at my previous job. When I was working there, there were no electronic devices or cameras allowed in the courtroom. And I was actually, there was no recording, no photos allowed in the courtroom. And I was actually the only reporter who covered this trial. Um, and after the trial was over, then national news started to pick up on it. And right. the Washington Post did a story, but I was the only person who was in that courtroom. And when I would get back from the courtroom and get back to the office and tell my coworkers and tell my editor what had happened that day, I would, I would say things like, I, I would say those things like she was carrying, she was carrying her teddy bear while she was testifying on the stand. And then I would write my story. I was, and I was a very new reporter. This was literally the first jury trial I had ever covered. She oh, would talk about baptism by fire. Yeah. And I would write, I would file my story and it would just be an account of, you know, what testimony was given that day. And my editor said to me, like, why was the first detail, why was the first thing that you said not the fact that she was on the stand with her teddy bear? Like that was, that was the first thing you said to me when you walked in the door was just like how that picture was imprinted in your mind. That was the thing that you communicated to me. That's what you need to communicate to your reader. Right. Um, and so I learned a lot about like how to tell the story in a more effective way that actually that actually tells a story and doesn't just list a bunch of facts but evokes what what was actually happening in that courtroom, especially in this situation where there was no videos or photo 
like we're able to do in Ottawa County and Kent County courts. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, you know, trying to strike a balance between, okay, well, all, you know, all of these factual things have happened, you know, this many people testified today, you know, such and such expert on, you know, gunshot sounds or, or whatever, you know, talked for two hours or whatever. And then also, you know, trying to find a way to document the emotional and human component of, you know, just the, the impact of what is going on with these these families and, and the communities that they're a part of. I think that that is always something I'm really aware of, of, of trying to kind of capture both of those things simultaneously. And I think sometimes you're a little more successful with it than others. Like there are sometimes families that just don't want anything to do with you and, and are not ready to talk to the press about, you know, who their loved one was or, mm-hmm. you know, are, are not ready to, you know, share photos or, or remembrances or whatever. And that's fine. I mean, that's, you know, people process things at their own rate and you, you know, have to be respectful of that because if they're not ready, then they're not ready. But I, I think that was something that was something that I had to learn kind of through trial and error because I definitely never had like a class in journalism school of how to interview victims' families or how to interview families of, you know, people accused of, of you know, incredibly violent crimes. Like I certainly never had a <laughs> an interviewing skills class that, that covered those kind of really emotionally charged situations. And, you know, sometimes there are families that um, want to be open books and they want to, you know, bring out the baby pictures and talk about about who they've lost and and talk about, you know, everything from from start to finish. And then there are families that just want to slam the door in your face and you have to kind of be prepared for both and just accept like whatever plane that that family is on at that time. But that's Mm -hmm. something that I feel like I have done far more frequently (laughs) than I ever knew that I would, you know, when I became a, a, before I was an editor, I was, you know, a crime and, and courts reporter. And I mean, I knew like intellectually, like, okay, you're going to go to house fires. You're going to go to car crashes. You're going to go to, you know, because we live on the lakeshore to, to drownings or boating, you know, incidents or whatever. And that's, you know, on paper, you're like, okay, you know, I, I can do that. I can get in my car and drive to an address and, you know, take pictures or whatever. And then the actual matter of going and doing those things and, you know, trying to, to find that balance of getting in the information you need and being respectful and also, you know, not trying to miss any details, like all, all of those things kind of going on is definitely a learned skill that I don't necessarily know that I learned in college, but I'm also not sure how one would effectively teach that unless you're just like, all right, everybody, let's go follow the scanner calls for a day. I mean, it's, it's right. a, a hard thing to describe to someone how to handle. I mean, you can say, you know, respect the police tape and, you know, all those things that you kind of need to do on, on the scene of breaking news. But it's kind of one of those things where you just have to sort of experience it firsthand and, and figure out how you want to be as a reporter. Do you want to hang back and kind of observe from afar for a little bit first? Do you want to jump right in and get interviews? Like it's, it's different with every journalist. And I think that that's one of those things that there's just like, I don't know how you would replicate what that process is in a classroom, but it's certainly something that takes a little while to learn when you get on the job. For sure. I mean, I've I've heard it said that every reporter should be a cop reporter at some point. And I I can get behind that because you you just learn so much about how to deal with interpersonal interaction, how to just gather that basic primary information when no one else 
has it. Oh, like, sure. yeah. like you can't just look on the news to find oh, out right. what happened. You have, to you, go, you have to go and see what happened. Right. <laughs> yeah. well, it's, it's just like the essence of being a journalist. Oh yeah. Yeah. To some extent, you know, like you I, I I think it's really valuable to to be a police reporter at some point in your career for sure. Yeah. I think too, you know, I don't know if you have ever had any similar instances, but I think when you are kind of at the scene, you know, you kind of show up at the same place as, you know, firefighters and cops a lot of the time, you kind of get a really different perspective of, of what their job entails and kind of the limitations of the information that they can or cannot give you that I think sometimes general public population don't necessarily understand, like, well, why can't they just tell us this information? And they get really frustrated. Whereas you may know, well, this person is, you know, maybe they're still armed or maybe they're still out and about or, you know, we don't know what's going on. I mean, sometimes it's it's just as, you know, important for people, for, for police to not say something as it is for them to say something. And I, I think that that can be like so frustrating. I mean, it's very frustrating, you know, for us when we're trying to get information. But, you know, there was a, a scene that I was at um, on 14th Street in Holland. So not that far away, you know, from our, our newsroom. Um, and it was a homicide call. And in general, if we have the staff available for homicide calls, we try to kind of work on the buddy system and take somebody else with us. So it may be, you know, our, our digital director to maybe help us do a Facebook Live from the scene or something like that. And so I went and then a, one of my fellow reporters, Jake Allen, went along with me and it was a stabbing homicide and the female had been stabbed repeatedly and it was a domestic dispute about child support amounts and it was kind of a, a horrible situation and the suspect had fled and was still armed with the knife. And then I had been on the scene for maybe, I don't know, 20 minutes. And we were just, you know, trying to get, you know, a sergeant to give us some more information and get photos and all that kind of stuff. And then the Holland Police Department cruisers started to to move and they were parked. I mean, it was like, you know, a subdivision street. And so then they, they moved their cruisers so that they were perpendicular to the sidewalks. They were like blocking off the street. And I thought, okay, well, maybe they're going to, you know, bring out the body bag and they don't want me to take pictures or whatever, which, you know, I totally get it. And then one of the sergeants came over to, to my fellow reporter and I, and he said, hey, I just want to let you know that we got some information that the suspect is trying to return to the scene and he is still armed and is covered in blood. So we're barricading ourselves behind the cruisers. And there I was like, you know, in jeans and boat shoes and had my camera on like my purse. And my fellow reporter was like at his phone and maybe a notebook. And I was like, one, I definitely can't run very fast in these shoes. And two, like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and so I and I, I just kind of looked at the sergeant and I was I said so like I get that I can't really cross the police tape like I totally get that but could I like maybe also be behind your cruiser that you've barricaded yourself behind and he just looked at me like straight in the face and went I'm really sorry I can't do that and I was like I just was so shocked <laughs> that I didn't even know how to process that information and they had said on the scanner on the police scanner before we left like what kind of vehicle this this suspect was driving 
driving because it was, you know, it was a, like a be on the lookout for kind of call across the scanner. And I just turned to my fellow reporter and I said, you see any red vehicle come anywhere near this vicinity? Like we are leaving. <laughs> like I am not doing that. And I mean, it was just so wild to me that, you know, that I mean, I was kind of thankful that the sergeant had said that to me of like, hey, we have some information that this man with a knife that's covered in blood may be coming toward you. But like I had no like brain capacity at that moment to think, okay, well, if I see a guy coming toward me that has blood all over his pants and a knife, here's what I'm going to do. Like that was something that I never had even had an inkling of of what I would do in that situation. And I think I had only been a reporter for, I don't even think I had been a reporter for a full year at that point. And I just mm-hmm. like, looked at my fellow reporter and I, I was like, what, what, what? <laughs> like, I, I just had no idea what to do. And, and the sergeant was, I mean, he said, you know, well, maybe stay on the sidewalk and not in the road or whatever. And I was like, all right, cool. I guess that's what this situation is now. <laughs> like, you just never know, you know, what, what situation you're going to kind of find yourself at, at the scene of breaking news, because that's the nature of it is that it's quickly evolving and you don't really know, you know, what it is you're going to walk into. Mm-hmm. Okay, so other than scary moments and and moments with lots of tears, I think that kind of one of the cool aspects of being one of those reporters that can go through a bunch of documents pretty quickly and having a little bit of legal background is that we sometimes get pulled in on really kind of crazy out there stories that you might need a little bit of context for. And sometimes Mm -hmm. those are lawsuits, but they're also sometimes city city ordinance questions that are really problematic. So like I think sometimes some of my most memorable and like what is happening right now moments in journalism have been kind of lawsuit related or legal tangential cases. Have you ever had those situations, Carolyn, where you're like looking around at your notes for a story or you're in the middle of an interview and you just kind of think to yourself, how have I gotten to this point in my life? (laughs) Like what landed me in this moment? (laughs) Yeah, I, I mean... I've certainly thought that many times. <laughs> uh, I, I honestly can't think of an example off the top of my head. So I wondered if you wanted to maybe talk about the sex shop in Zealand saga for a second. That was a good one. <laughs> Yeah. So, gosh, when was that? Like, maybe only a couple of months ago. I think it was only two, two, three months ago. We we got information that there was a new shop in Zealand that all of a sudden had opened without really any notice. And then within 24 hours had been shut down by police. And we found the Facebook page for the shop. And it was called Grimlock's Emporium for the Misbehaved Lady, Misbehaved Woman, something like that. And I mean, it was kind of like straight up downtown Zealand and it was a sex shop and related items for sale, which did not fly so well for the city officials of Zealand. And they were saying it was, you know, an ordinance violation of the kinds of business that's allowed in the downtown corridor. And, you know, on its face, you think, oh my goodness, you know, fairly conservative Zealand. This is, you know, so scandalous. Everyone's talking about this online. The Facebook comments were amazing. And you have this moment of like, oh, ha ha ha, you know, a little uncomfortable giggling because you're not sure 
awkward what else to do high school girl moment. And then you get down to it and you go, oh, shoot, I've got to interview this guy. Like, (laughs) I actually have to do the process of like reporting this story. And, you know, so I I called the city manager and I, you know, talked to him about the ordinance and, you know, why they were enforcing things a certain way. And that was fine. And then I called the owner of of the store who also owns another business in in Zealand. And he, you know, he called me back right away and, you know, started to, to talk about, you know, his experiences. And then I said, well, you know, no one is is allowed to buy your products at this point and nobody can, you know, you've been shut down. Nobody can come into the store and, you know, buy whatever you had on your shelf. So could you explain to me a little bit what you were selling? And I just kind of meant that in a, you know, I've never been in this person's store. Now nobody can be in this person's store. I'm just trying to get a little, just, you know, is this guy selling like magazines? Is he selling, you know, more like physical products I don't I mean I didn't know I had never been a lot of like a general overview I was looking for the type yeah. <laughs> like a sentence that, that I could use from this guy as a quote of like, well, we sell, you know, a variety of adult products or, you know, something along those lines. And without even like missing a beat, the store owner starts going, like you could tell he was in his store looking at all of the boxes of stuff that he had had to take off of his shelves and going through kind of line by line of what he had in far greater detail than I had bargained for. And I mean, I'm an adult, like it's okay. It's, you know, whatever floats your boat, man. But he started talking about, you know, all of these different product lines he had and, you know, different genres and corners of his store that had themed products and all of these things and in great detail and talking about the variety. And I just, I just kept going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Like I just, I was trying so hard to be like so professional and keep it together. And I was, you know, typing away so I could, you know, like my notes from that story are definitely not safe for work, uh, like rating. (laughs) on what you know what words he was saying and I was typing away trying to transcribe and not really thinking about like the whole time I was just I was just thinking I can't use a single word of what this man is saying in our article like I can't use any of these words <laughs> and I, I mean the the you know we kind of find a way to work around it and you make some generalizations about you know the types of products he has and, and that sort of thing and then you move on but I just remember that our editor-in-chief was sitting across from me she was in the cubicle across from me and she was gonna leave for the day because we had stumbled upon the story kind of later in the afternoon and she looked at me to kind of she did like a thumbs up or a thumbs down and and she was asking you know like are you good on the story are we going to have it for the the paper or whatever and I just looked at her and like I guess (laughs) I mean I I was in the phone call so I can't uh, you know I couldn't see my own face but she just lost it when like I had this like look on my face that I just was like how have I gotten myself in this situation in which I'm having this phone call with this person I've never met (laughs) and she she just absolutely lost it. So then this man was still telling me about all of these products he had and the entire newsroom was hysterically laughing while I was on the phone. So you have those moments and you just think to yourself, like, how have all of the stars in my life aligned to this moment in which I am having these conversations with these individuals about the topics that I am? And then you find a way to write the story afterward, but you just have those moments of, oh my goodness, how am I here in this moment? (laughs) Right, yeah. I think we probably don't want to be too much longer, but I don't think we can get away with doing this podcast without talking about a few of the animal cases. Yeah. Animal cases, animal court cases are really interesting to me because there's some different dynamics going on. For one thing, they provoke some of the the most emotional responses from readers to the extent that it 
it's almost like it almost makes you upset because people seem to care more about the animal cases than about people suffering that is happening Um, and at the same time there are these weird legal issues where animal abuse cases at least when i was covering them in indiana the statute only allows animal abuse cases to be prosecuted as misdemeanors so yeah. then the cases themselves end up being like surprisingly low stakes. People right. get a couple of days in jail for yeah. essentially torturing an animal. Like totally different sets of laws. I mean, you can't charge someone with, 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 with turkey with murder. You can't charge not, someone with turkey murder. Right. Like with a with it's not a person. Even if that animal had a wonderful personality and it was was well loved and just as much a member of a community as a person, like there are legal limitations to what you can criminally charge someone with. With, and I don't think that's always understood that much. So the case that Carolyn is referring to with turkey murder, there was a case, was that last year? I think at the fall, maybe? Where in, in Wakazoo Woods, which is in Park Township, it's a neighborhood in Park Township, there was a turkey who was well-loved and or well-hated, whoever, you know, depending on who you talk to, and they had named it. It was it went by a few different names. Some people called it Token. Some people called it Mr. Gobbles. And a group of teenagers hit it with a car and also beat it and it died. So that was like the facts of the case. And then I don't even know how to describe, like there were like straight up in memoriam videos that people in the neighborhood made for the turkey. And there were like people put crosses and flowers at his death site and it was people cared so much about this turkey and I had to like interview the sheriff's office about you know the case and the sheriff's office was very confused where I was calling about a dead turkey I mean it like it was a very (laughs) interesting situation but I mean people cared a lot and it's you know as journalists it's great to see community involvement and engaged citizens no matter what the topic of interest is I guess for sure but it also was kind of one of those moments where I found myself writing an obituary for a turkey and talking about how he was mated and he and the mate had baby turkeys together. And I wrote, like, Mr. Gobbles is survived by his turkey family. And I just, I mean, it's accurate. But did I ever think, you know, when I graduated with a journalism degree that I was going to be writing a turkey obituary? Absolutely not. So those are the moments where you're just... They're much more lighthearted than, you know, a horrible interview with grieving parents of a child that has been murdered, but it it matters to the community sometimes just as much. So it's very bizarre sometimes. And, and sometimes you just kind of have to chuckle to yourself that you're like, all right, this is my day today. This is what's on my plate of what we're writing. But man, sometimes you have those moments of you're just like kind of reassessing how you have got to the place that you have gotten to. <laughs> it's um, certainly never boring, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I we have written, like, I wrote about a, a tortoise that got lost, and then the tortoise's name was Tater Tot, and we, which, I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, that's, I mean, that's just great by itself. But we ended up in the newsroom figuring out the average rate of speed for this particular kind of tortoise, and we did a little Google map of saying, you know, in the 19 hours this tortoise has been lost, here's the, <laughs> the radius in which this tortoise could be in, and people in the community went out and searched for this tortoise, and somebody found it. I mean, 
mean, it's, <laughs> you definitely don't have a, a day in, in journalism school where you talk about, you know, unintentionally forming tortoise search parties, but that's great. <laughs> it's, it's a great time when, when that's what you're writing about. So yeah, it's, it's certainly never boring and it's fun to have every day be very different, I think for sure. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Um, yeah. Well, I'm sure that we will have just as many exciting, crazy stories in our next five years in journalism. <laughs> I don't think it's going to get any less weird anytime soon. So I'm sure we'll have more stories in the future. And yeah, I, I know this is kind of a, what is the term? Trope? Um, truism? <laughs> I, neither of those are the word I want. One of those things. Cliche, cliche. Okay, I know it's a cliche, but truth is stranger than fiction becomes so apparent to you as a as a reporter. Sometimes it's one of my favorite things about being a reporter, and sometimes it's one of the worst things when we deal with the the more awful kinds of cases but it really is true truth is stranger than fiction and it will continue to be true for the next couple of years so i'm sure we'll have many more stories to share yeah there's so many times where i just think to myself i could never make this up my imagination is not this good <laughs> cool okay well thanks so much for for sharing some of your you know strangest and most intense moments of journalism and i think next week the plan is that we're going to talk to um some of our designer friends about the aspect of kind of physically putting the newspaper together and deciding what goes where and what photos they pick and all that kind of stuff so stay tuned for from the newsroom next time guys thanks so much for joining us mm-hmm.